The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, we talk with Chuck Kennedy and Denise Herman about the founding of the 70s sleeping bag company Downhome. We talk with them about making gear to fund their lifestyles and their origins as the founders of the Arcata gear industry. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today, uh, Chuck Kennedy and Denise Herman, founders of Downhome. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, thanks for taking some time. It's great to see you. Uh, first of all, you know we're doing this in the midst of everything happening with COVID. Um, so, how are you two? both doing in the midst of everything that's going on right now in the world. Are you doing well? Well, we live 50 miles from town. And so life isn't really all that much different for us because we don't see people in town anyway. <laughs> we have few, further, few, fewer trips. Uh, we miss our face community, I guess. Is yeah, we miss going to mass. Other than that, things are the same. We try to be careful with neighbors and family and we're not young and but it's yeah we've had huge food co-op orders and <laughs> yeah well i'm glad that you're and you're both healthy glad that you guys are staying safe in the middle of everything that's going Thank on you. you're in southern oregon is that right no we're about midway up we're between midway. eugene and florence in the coastal mountains okay i guess i'm i'm confusing the history a little bit because you lived Kind of southern Oregon, right? At at one no, point, Arcata. Right? In Arcata, right? Arcata, and then moved to here. where you're at now. Yeah, we've yes. we've been here for forty years. Okay, well, we'll yeah. get into the history and set the record straight. So, yeah. um, well, I wanted to have you on because we, um, you know, I talked about this with you a little bit before we started recording, but we've been doing these conversations, oral histories, with people like Bruce Johnson, you know, historians of the outdoor industry, and and down home is one of the companies that he loves, and he loves the story of the Arcata region. Uh, we had an episode all about the different hot spots around the country for gear making, and uh, he wanted to do a whole episode on Arcata. And what is it about that region that there was, you know, there were companies popping up and people making products, and and Down Home was one of those. And so I thought it would be great to to get the creators, the founders, um, on to tell your story a little bit so how many minutes do you have oh you know what i've got a lot of time i'm oh, good until okay, go. i've got plenty of time here's so the no, story yeah no worries about that our, um, our version of the story <laughs> well i maybe we can go back a little bit and just i'd love to hear you know where did both of you grow up um how much was the outdoors a part of growing up for you and and how much did that influence you wanting to get in and, and make products yourselves well, uh, I grew up in Southern California um, and uh, did a lot of camping. I mean, 
it started with, I guess, with Boy Scouts and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, when I went to Pasadena City College, there was a club there called the Highlanders. And it was a, a, a mountaineering, hiking mountaineering club. And uh, it was it was actually the first time I really felt like I fit in <laughs> to something. Um, and then uh, uh, several, well, in 67, I moved uh, up to Humboldt State College in Arcata. And uh, we had a club there. It's called Boot and Blister. Um, and it was the same kind of thing. Um, I don't know, to catch Denise up, why don't you say what... <laughs> How you got? Uh, well, I was a Navy child, born in Virginia, moved around a lot. Our family was a lot, a fair number of kids, so we didn't go to any foreign countries or anything. But we moved around a fair amount, and we did some camping. My um, uh, parents would take us camping, and but that's I was in Girl Scouts for a bit, and but that's kind of it. Um, just kind of a worker bee. <laughs> we joined forces, and I yeah. I'll make it happen. <laughs> yeah. So how did you, how did you two meet in Arcata or, or did you meet there? Uh, Chuck, he had a, uh, a backpacking, uh, bicycling, river touring store. At that time I was working at the theaters in Arcata and a friend of mine that worked there also said they were looking for somebody to sew at his shop where they made equipment uh, before down home. This is before down home. And, um, and I was looking for more work, and um, I went in there and applied for the sewing job to make sleepy mags and whatever. <laughs> the, <laughs> I had told uh, the, the worker that I had was really good, and uh, I, I told her anybody that she recommended, I would, I'd hire. Yeah, so I got um, the job. <laughs> that's a pretty good interview Denise, process. Yeah. Denise came in, <laughs> and <laughs> the other part of it, she came in. This is over 40 years ago. And I looked at her and I thought, I think I'm in love. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. But I got hired. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so um, really, I guess, le- le- leading up to that is, I guess, is the more the history of, of the Arcata stuff. Um, but which with the boot and blister, I was... I was the president of that club for a couple of years. And in that time, in 69, um, uh, I was involved with the conservation movement there. And in 69, uh, was, we began preparing for the first Earth Day. And um, I became the chairman of uh, the committee that was organizing stuff basically for Northwestern California, the coast, North Coast. And um, we had a really large, uh, we had a whole week long uh, program that ended up in a fair with that. Anyway, I spoke at, um, at, um, at the high school, Arcata High, about this. And I had, I was recycling my tr- truck and bought a really, really nice bike um, to replace it. And so at, the, at this uh, assembly, I said, well, instead of trying to have the hottest car in town, uh, you might think about having the hottest bicycle in town. And I said, over there in the corner is, is the hottest bicycle in, in Humboldt County. And <laughs> <laughs> anyway, after the thing, a couple of guys came up and one of them said, well, where do you buy a bike like that? 
And I said, well, Berkeley or San Francisco, <laughs> which was 300 miles away. Another guy said, well, I have a bike like that. And where do you get parts for something like that? And I said, well, Berkeley or San Francisco. And I had gone at that time in, in Boot and Blister, I had gone around to the sporting goods uh, stores and just basically begged them if they would sell something like water bottles or anything that had to do with backpacking. And they kind of went, huh? And, uh, and so, and same with bicycles. I went to, at the Schwinn dealer, went to get a derailleur cape and I said, to what? And, uh, <laughs> and so I came back from this assembly to our office and I was really frustrated. I said, how can we expect people, ask people to do this when they can't even get anything like this within 300 miles? And this other friend said, well, Jesus, it sounds like we need to start that general store we've always talked about where it has stuff like this. And so that was where the idea came. We didn't have much money. Steve O'Meara and I started, I think our total investment was 1200 bucks, And we had a dozen water bottles stretched out on a shelf to try and make things sort of look at All our bike parts were in two small paper bags. And, um, <laughs> and that's how it started in... Um, 1970 and and it grew and the name was uh it was the arcata transit authority uh specialist in human powered land transport was that and it was it was around that uh, it was around uh human powered stuff was the idea well there was um there we i met a um uh well, was through uh, Sierra Designs that I heard about it, but a guy down in Santa Cruz uh, named Dave Meeks. Uh, he was a Yosemite climber and uh, was making uh, custom sleeping bags uh, in in Santa Cruz. And uh, he agreed to make five bags a month for us. Um, and uh, but he got tired of that after a year or so, a couple of years, and uh, said, "Well." you guys ought to start making them yourselves. And um, so we got another couple of friends to kind of get into that. Uh, and they called their stuff Blue Cuma. Um, and there was a the pro, uh, Presbyterian minister in town was making frost line kits you know, and mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, <laughs> and so they got some ideas from that. Um, then they decided to quit that after a couple of years. And we took it over and I became the manager of that part. Um, and at that point, I started really rethinking things and um, we totally redid the sleeping bag design and the, and the clothing designs and stuff. Then in 70, well, it was late 77, uh, we were having a meeting and talking about expansion and stuff. And I realized I was, I was describing what probably should happen and then as I was talking, I realized that I didn't really want to have anything to do with it. Everything was kind of turning into adult fashion boutique stores rather than hardcore equipment. And uh, so I sold out. Um, and Denise had been working uh, there for um, and I was, uh, some months before that. And uh, I wanted to become a farmer, uh, go out. And, and I'd always felt like when I was going to the mountains, I felt like I was going home. And uh, uh, I was thinking, well, if that's where home is, why am I here? Um, and uh, so I wanted to uh, move out. 
we don't have any land. We don't have anything. What are, what are we going to do to support ourselves? And I thought, well, I know how to make sleeping bags. Um, <laughs> and I just re- redesigned the stuff there. But, um, uh, but one of my frustrations in doing stuff was uh, get told, well, we can't do that because this is the way every piece, people have always done it or that's too expensive or whatever. And so um, when we started, we spent an entire year rethinking sleeping bag design. We didn't sell any, anything for a year. Um, and I was trying to change all the stuff that I thought could be changed. Um, and so that's where our designs came from. Um, and uh, Fred Williams had started Moonstone Mountaineering in the meantime uh, there. And we became friends. And so I would come, I'd make a prototype and then we'd bicycle over to his uh, house, which was out away from town. And he'd look and he said, Oh, that's great. You know how to do it. And I said, well, it's not quite right. And so we'd go back and make another one and make another one. And it took a year till we came up with, um, with the bag that we wanted to make. And it had one had a floating hood for, for being able to sleep on your stomach or whatever. And the other, but it, a stomach sleeper, <laughs> of course. And, and another thing was that uh, was that uh, you know you have the differential cut. The theory was uh, so you can't push through the stuff, but with a single zipper, you could push through it anyway. Um, and um, so I wanted to do double zipper. The only person at that time was uh, Steve uh, Jack Stevenson making the warm light bags, and. Uh, I actually called him and asked permission <laughs> to use his idea. The double zipper. <laughs> the double zipper. Well, we, and, we, uh, we, did a, said, we had a whole interview with, with Bruce about Jack Stevenson, and it seemed like he was never too concerned about keeping his ideas, just his yeah, ideas. Like, yeah. It seemed like a lot of people were willing to reach out to him and you know, use those ideas or talk to him. At least you asked permission. It seemed like a lot of people didn't even ask permission, so that's great. <laughs> Well, we had uh, we ended up having a a, pretty, a good long distance friendship uh, going on with it, and uh, but with his double zipper, it still didn't uh, it didn't address this issue of differential cut. Um, and anyway, the way we designed it, it became a true differential cut. Um, and so that was one of the things we changed. The other, uh, the baffle design, um, you know, you have sewn through, you have box construction, you have uh, uh, the V-tube uh, construction. Uh, but with the box construction, they, they could collapse. I mean, just like a rectangle, you know, it can collapse over, and which kind of defeated that thing. And so, and the, the V, uh, was too tight. I mean, it was only for really, really thick sleeping bags. Um, so I came up with what it called trapezoidal baffling, which was taking the V and spreading it out. And then that, <clears throat> that baffle, that spacing of the baffle changed um, depending on the thickness. And so it became proportional to the thickness of the loft of the bag. And uh, then up in the, in the upper body, um, you know, Marmot was doing a collar inside the bag and stuff to, to deal with the closure up there. We started doing was 
actually a mummy shape, literally, where it came up and it curved in over top of the ship, really followed the body contour. Um, and with the hood, the hood also, uh, all of the thing was differentially cut where the entire bag uh, was full, full thickness insulation all the way around. And so uh, those things plus the idea of, well, being able to roll over in the thing um, was the other part. And so the, the floating hood became, looked like a, like a space helmet or something. <laughs> but, and so we had the attached hood and we had the box hood, I mean, the different uh, floating hood. And then the sewing, this is where uh, Denise became an essential part of it. The, I could dream up these things. Uh, but uh, yeah, the part of the sewing was also, I mean, this guy, you know, just the quality of the stuff. I didn't want any shown, sewn seams, uh, you know, where, where you couldn't really figure out where the heck the down came into the bag. Um, and, but in there, up in the hood area in particular, uh, things were so tight. I mean, you were having to get into tiny baffles through other tiny baffles. And so I'd get it to where I, figured out that it was theoretically possible <laughs> and then Denise had to do it <laughs> and it's her her sewing was incredible um we had uh, one guy Lonnie Thomas who he made all of his own equipment he was a physicist down in Berkeley and but he was an incredible perfectionist he made all his stuff except his sleeping bag and he just we met his <laughs> criterion for it, <laughs> and it was. I mean, Denise's sewing was incredible. Well, the nicest compliment was we had a customer from Chicago. He said, I grew up in a tailoring family, and this is, you do really, really nice work. I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> we wow. Yeah, that, that's a huge compliment. Um, <laughs> when, when was all of this happening? 77? Uh, uh, so we started down home in 78. Okay. Uh, we started selling bags in 79. Okay. Uh, the uh, Arcade Transit Authority started in 1970. Um, and... Uh, so that was, as far as the start in, in Arcata, it started with Arcata Transit Authority. Right. Um, right. The store opened in 1970? Yeah. And so I was... And equipment. And that was something where uh, uh, we went down to Berkeley. We, in trying to look at things, we went down to Berkeley and uh, we went to Sierra Designs uh, to their retail store and was asking for help. And uh, the manager... And I can't recall his name, but his, the manager said, you expect me to sit here and tell you what I've learned in 30 years of, uh, of this? Uh, it was probably 20 years anyway. He'd been going a lot of years. And he, you want me to just turn this stuff over to you? And uh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his ideas? Yeah. And, you know, where you get, you know, your sources, all oh, that sorry. type of thing. <laughs> right. And uh, so we got talking. We just talked. And he says, at the, you know, after a while, he says, oh, here. And he opens up his file cabinet and he does literally give us everything. Uh, all his sources, all his. Uh, and it, it was an incredible gift. Um, and then uh, 
my bike I bought from Velosport in, in Berkeley. Uh, it turns out when I uh, when went in there, the owner of that, Peter Rich, uh, my first uh, uh, 10-speed was in uh, 1962 when I was going to Berkeley, and I bought it at Berkeley Cycling Toy <laughs> Shop. And it turns out that Peter was the uh, high school teenager that put my bike together. <laughs> then, <laughs> anyway, so we got to talking to him, and he said, "Well, I wouldn't start a bike shop and if I didn't have at least ten thousand dollars." And I said, "Well, we only have fifteen hundred dollars at that point, and uh, we wanted to start a bicycle and a backpacking shop <laughs> together." And um, he said, "Well, I wouldn't do it without experience." And I said, "Well, unless you have a job for me this summer." Uh, you know, anyway, and he just on the spur of the moment, he said, okay, you can have a job here. And uh, I said, well, we're going on this trip. I can't get here for a couple of weeks. And uh, we finished the thing. And then I, I bicycled from Arcata down to our, uh, to late summer. Well, on that trip uh, down in Los Angeles, we went, we hooked up with a couple of suppliers in the backpacking, went to Raleigh, a distributor to go there. And he said, Oh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't take on anybody without at least a $40,000 investment, um, which took care of that for us. Um, but anyway, uh, you're yakking. I've kind of forgot where I was going, but anyway, that's, that, that's how Arcata Transit started. And then at that point we had support from from the guys in boot and blister, basically. One guy wanted freeze-dried foods, and I didn't really, bre I believed in just buying stuff from the, from the grocery store. I thought that all this freeze-dried uh, stuff was a rip-off as far as money, but he really wanted this. And so he gave us the money to, to get a stock of this stuff. He said, you can just pay me back in food. And, you know, <laughs> it was that kind of support from people. Uh, and because there was nothing there in Arcata at all. Fred, when he moved there, he started the Moonstone. Uh, again, just really small. Um, and then when we, by the time we started down home, we, we rented a place in an old industrial building. And Fred ended up, uh, he was wanting to expand. He ended up renting space right next to us. And our offices were uh, connected uh, there's a wall between them and we would go back and forth and we'd be talking about all these design stuff and to where his wife Nikki um, for Christmas gave us um, gave Fred and me a uh, an intercom which was uh, two tin cans uh, with a string going between the wall <laughs> <laughs> uh, so <laughs> Oh, this is very sophisticated. Uh, <laughs> and then, <clears throat> I think uh, on our last conversation, you asked where the name came from, uh, yeah. with the down home. <clears throat> yeah. And that was Fred and I were, uh, were, I went with Fred down to San Francisco. He had to get all his polar guard insulation from down there and then drive it back because the distance and stuff, the shipping was really expensive. So we were on the way down there and I was talking about these dreams about this shop that I want to start. And <clears throat> well, it was going to be basically the cash crop that could allow us to move out to a farm or something. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, and we can maybe raise some uh, geese and, you know, 
<laughs> for our own down. <laughs> and I said, well, it'd be kind of a down-home operation. And Fred said, that sounds like a name for it. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we pulled <laughs> pulled off the road at a, at a payphone, <laughs> and I called back to Denise Master. Well, what would you think about us calling it down home? She well, or whatever. What? That's fine. <laughs> Sounds good. So by the time we got to San Francisco, I wasn't introducing our company as down home. And so anyway, all this, all this kind of stuff back then was, if you thought about it at the time, it was almost like a, all these things started as a joke almost. Yeah. Um, but we designed the stuff and then Fred who was, had gotten into wholesaling and stuff. And he was, he was more, he was a really, um, he was a better business person. Hyper guy <laughs> who was really doing this business stuff. And, uh, and he, so he was really pushing our stuff. And, um, he, he's the one that connected us with Wayne Gregory, Gregory mountain products. Um, and Marmot, at that time, Marmot was the uh, the real premier uh, brand. And they had a shop in Berkeley. We were down there. Um, and Fred became our sales representative, essentially. <laughs> just on, And he um, took some... Well, I had done the stuff sack that I designed for the bags because I was concerned with that. I'm, it was a double-air stuff sack with a fancy closure on the top is kind of like a package closure on it. Have you ever seen one of those? Any, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so we opened Wayne Gregory uh, down there at that time. He had a little tiny shop along with his backpack. Uh, and uh, we took him on as a dealer. Marmot took us on as their uh, custom line of bags. They sold above their own bags. Um, and then uh, there was skinny skis in uh, Jackson, and there was um, mountain <laughs> mountain something in in, uh, in Boulder. <laughs> I've forgotten now. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, and so we had those um, uh, for a number of years, and then our bags got so expensive that um, we. Uh, we uh, decided that we couldn't, you know, they were just, their price, our top bag was like $800. Mm. Uh, and so we ended up uh, cutting off the wholesale and just doing stuff direct. Um, and, but our bags, like that, that bag uh, had over $200 in wholesale materials in it. I mean, the, we were, because we wanted to, my goal was to make the best bags in the world <laughs> to last and to last. Uh, and so we got down that was above the quality of anybody was getting, we were paying $50 a pound for the down. Um, and uh, anyway, so um, yeah, that's how it got going shortly after I, at our Arcata transit, I started when uh Nordic skiing started to become introduced into this country. Uh, nobody knew how to do it up in uh, uh, northern, uh, in the north coast. And so we started a um, uh, 
Nordic skiing school also <laughs> to go with that. And then we got uh, into uh, ra uh, whitewater rafting and kayaking. And so uh, these are all my dream things. Anyway, we started a, uh, uh, a whitewater touring company, uh, uh, Six Rivers uh, uh, Whitewater. And John Banducci and Steve Cole uh, and I started that. And uh, after a while, Don and Steve, um, Steve was a mechanical engineer. He was one of my partners in Arcata Transit, um, but he was a mechanical engineer also. Anyway, Steve, went up, um, there was a guy up in Yakima, Washington, that built a, the really the best foot braces for kayaks. And he was an old guy and he was retiring and Don didn't want to see this stop happening. So they went up there and talked him into selling Yakima to them. And at that time it was just foot braces. Then you had a really funky uh, car top rack hmm. and uh, they took that and with, uh, with Steve's en uh, engineering background and stuff. And Don was a real salesman. <laughs> they, uh, started Yakima rooftop racks. And so we had Arcade Transit. Uh, we had the down, at that time, it was the stuff, the bags that we made, we made at our Arcade Transit were called Blue Puma. Um, and uh, because Don Leap's uh, wife, uh, Kathy, in Girl Scouts, had something called the Blue Puma. And so they had, and they had a blue Volkswagen that they named the Blue Puma. Mm. So anyway, that's where their name came from. And then Puma Shoes uh, threatened to sue, uh, sue us uh, for uh, copyright infringement, I guess, on the Puma name. Um, and so they ended up changing. After we sold out, um, they started making uh, uh, dry suits uh, for, for kayaking and for diving and stuff. Uh, they kind of originated dry suits. Um, and they named their company Kokatat. And so Kokatat uh, dry suits started. And so Arcata Transit, uh, Moonstone Mountaineering, Down Home, Yakima Rooftop Racks, and Kokatat uh, all started in Arcata. And so when you ask about where, <laughs> where all this stuff from Arcata started. <laughs> started with you started two. Started with Earth Day in 1970. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I think that's why... Um, I think I was interested in this story. It, I think it just goes to show that, you know, how much two people can have an influence over, I don't know, so, so many different things, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you can trace back so many companies. Um, I didn't know about Yakima um, and the connection there. I mean, you can trace so much back to this region. The uh, Jerry's, um, uh, Ed... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the really big one, Eddie Bauer. <laughs> All those things started again with just people, you know, who are backpackers or whatever. Started Sierra Designs, North Face. Um, uh, I forget which way it went, but North Face kind of came out of uh, one of them came out of the other, really, and there and they both came out of Trailwise, I think was named in in Berkeley. And that's those three in Berkeley. They all kind of start, again, out of just individual backpackers or climbers starting this stuff. 
Chouinard uh, started in Patagonia. Chouinard started with, he and Royal Robbins were uh, big rock climbers in, in, uh, in Yosemite. And Yvonne Chouinard uh, knew some blacksmithing and he, was, he had a portable forge and was making pitons there in, in the valley for the climber you know, <laughs> to climb with. And again, it's just individuals. And then uh, Royal Robbins started his store all of these things grew out of just individuals who were really committed to their sport or to their activity. Right. I think yeah. it's also interesting. Um, I mean, you, I think there's a common thread too. It's between a lot of you just figuring it out, right? Figuring out how to do it. There wasn't a blueprint for how to do these things. Yeah. Um, did, did you have anyone that you looked to or companies that inspired you or? Dave Meeks, M-E-E-K-S. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, down in Santa Cruz, was making his bags. Uh, he was he was a Yosemite climber also, uh, but he's he was making bags, and then he wanted us to start making our own bags. His, so his, his wife was Elaine. Elaine yeah. yeah. A L A Y N E Elaine Meeks. Yeah. In Santa Cruz, and then he quit it. And by the time before we got to down home. He had uh, dropped out of making bags to become a beekeeper. Uh, and again, it was this idea, it was kind of the same reason I dropped out to become, hope to become a farmer. Uh, but um, when I, so, so he was one person I really looked up to. And this thing about copying people and all the confessions, <laughs> true confessions, at, at Blue Puma, um, Again, this idea of where to close the bag, where to put the, in, the do the fill from. Um, North Face had a, they closed their bags inside. I thought was really interesting and we actually uns, uh, took apart, <laughs> opened up a North Face bag where, where their fill area was. And that's where Blue Puma started doing that. We started doing that at Blue Puma. The way I filled was totally different after that. The other part of it was as retailers for, for North Face and Sierra Designs, different things, uh, I was able to go down and get tours of their factories. Um, and up at our place, when Don and Rick were doing Blue Puma, uh, they were sewing, they had no experience with, with industrial machines and they were pushing this stuff through the machine and, uh, when I went down, I was looking at North Face and Sierra Designs. Their seamstresses weren't working nearly as hard at it. <laughs> and, Physically. <laughs> and so I learned stuff there. And then as I started learning about the sewing machines, I realized that Don and Rick had their sewing machines totally adjusted wrong, where they really did have to pull the fabric through it. Um, and so I... Really, I'm a perfectionist, and I I really started learning really how those machines ought to be adjusted and how it would go. Um, and again, Chuck, so, Chuck has an engineering background from so, so anyways, kind that, of his world. So that uh, so yeah, we were we were picking up stuff like that. I didn't want when we went to down home. I really didn't want to be copying everything. Uh, our bags were totally. Uh, unique uh and that's where again with fred i went up uh to early winters 
at that time, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was up in Seattle. And they had grown really fast and they'd grown too fast and went bankrupt ultimately, but they made a really big splash in the late seventies. Uh, anyways, up there and uh, we went in and their vice president, uh, who was their designer, we were with him and with the president of the company and uh, the designer was going, Oh, your sleeping bags are so incredible. You know, and he started raving about our sleeping bags and well, the, the president said, well, we make good stuff too. <clears throat> and he says, you can't make stuff like yours. And, and, and I said, and make money. And he goes, you said that, not me. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the case for Denise and I. We were making the most expensive sleeping bags in the world. And at our peak, we were making lower than minimum wage doing it. Um, it there was an incredible amount of labor in putting into making these bags the way we did. And so um, no other, as far as I know, nobody else ever, when we dropped it, nobody else ever took that up at that level. I've, I got to where living out here wasn't backpacking so much because I was living in the mountains anymore. <laughs> and, um, but I went into REI and was looking at stuff and somebody was doing trapezoidal baffling. Um, somebody and I, that. I don't know whether anybody does that anywhere or not, but as far as an, an original contribution to sleeping bag design uh, that actually went, ironically, it's a, the idea of trapezoidal baffling. <laughs> anyway. I'm gabbing a lot here. No, that's great. That's why we're doing this. Um, what? Why did you keep doing it? I know you. You kind of mentioned. Um, you know, I mean, you you made money doing it. Um, you know, minimum wage. But why? Why did you both keep doing it? <laughs> well, it was work we could do out here in the middle of in the country. Gave you some flexibility. I mean, there's more of the story. <laughs> but, yeah. And that was because the goal was to become a farmer. I, um, and I was interested in draft horses. And I got draft horses and started, uh, actually, because we're out in the mountain, I started doing horse logging. Um, and um, uh, so that, you know, that was, we wanted to do that more than the bags. The bags was just to be a cash crop type of thing. Um, and the idea also there with moving out, all we needed was UPS and a telephone um, to do this. I would spend, and being a kind of motor mouth guy, I'd, people would call their design, you know, bags. And sometimes I'd spend couple hours or more, you know, just talking with them. And then because there was a long wait time on our bags, then we'd have, we'd have extended phone conversations. They were paying the bill, fortunately, for the long distance. But <laughs> over, you know, months, I mean, it had gotten at the, at the end, it, it was a one-year waiting list on our bags. Uh, so you had to wait about a year to get your bag. Um, but along the way, I got really depressed um, by – Fact of, there, most of the people who bought our bags didn't really need them, um, and I'm concerned about consumption, consumer uh, stuff, and we were making something that nobody really needed. Uh, it was just, you know, it was 
for, uh, I, we had a few serious climbers, uh, mountaineers that bought the stuff. I had a guy that was leading up and leading, uh, climbing up in the Mount McKinley and stuff. And, um, you know, he actually wore out part of the bag yeah, just because he was spending, uh, he was spending like 200 nights a year, you know, in his, in his sleeping bag. Um, there was a guy um, who is an archaeologist who uh, he did, um, it was archaeology, underwater archaeology in the Andes, a high elevation, the Andes, <laughs> and called us afterwards and said, uh, he had a floating hood bag. He said, I need, a, I need a, another hood for my bag. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I was up there and the wind caught it and it blew it over this ledge <laughs> and he lost the bag. The hood. The hood. <laughs> Another lady um, went to um, Papua New Guinea, I guess. Um, and I forget uh, whether it was part, we made some ja uh, jackets and, uh, and we made mucklucks. Uh, anyway, I forget what it was exactly that, the piece that she had, but she'd gone to uh, New Guinea and was back in where the natives had really had never seen and had never had contact with uh, the Western culture. And she ended up trading uh, something from us for a, a stone ax uh, <laughs> with somebody there. <laughs> uh, uh, but the depressing part of it was another guy called and says, this is so beautiful. I don't want to use it. I just want to hang it over the mantle in the living room. <laughs> another guy was an engineer in, uh, in Los Angeles. He was from uh, Hong Kong. And he bought a bag and then he bought another bag and uh, he wasn't getting out. He bought another bag. He bought three bags uh, and and he wasn't using them because he couldn't take time off. And he went to buy another bag. And I said, look, I'm not going to sell you another bag unless you, until you go out and start using this stuff. I didn't want it just to be a total toy. Right. Um, and then ultimately out of, um, I went into a severe depression uh, around environmental issues and stuff um, into the deep. I won't get into it, but it was extremely deep. And, uh, and Denise said, well, uh, maybe we don't need that. But perhaps we should consider having uh, a kid or something. And No, no, no. I didn't bring up the kid thing. You brought oh, up the kid oh, thing, and I wasn't okay. interested, and I said, well, we could always adopt. She says, well, the world may not need more kids, but they may need better and more parents. And uh, so we started adopting, and then uh, ultimately we ended up adopting seven. We weren't getting sleeping bags done. And finally we decided that uh, we needed to face the fact that we weren't really doing it, and, uh, and we shut down. Um, Just focused on the kids. And yeah, what, what, the year kid. was, what year was that? We, we shut down in 94. Mm, okay. Um, and uh, we still get... <laughs> Our first kids were adopted in 91. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, have, we have one guy back in North Carolina that, uh, I don't know, uh, 
<laughs> Ten years later, something called and wondered if he, we could make a bag for him. Well, we don't. I mean, the stuff is actually buried under a bunch of kids' stuff in there and stuff. And he's really wanting to do it. And then more recently, it was just a couple of years ago, he called again. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> he said, well, I gave my bag to my son, you know, and I really need a bag. <laughs> Well, is that something that you've noticed? I mean, I feel like your company is so unique because you, I mean, like you said, there's this waiting list for product. You're on the phone with these people. I imagine you built some kind of attachment, maybe on, at least on their end, they developed an attachment to you and to the company and to the product. Um, there's an emotional attachment for me too. I mean, it's... Um, design, design, all that design work. Um, but it's just... It's, it has to be part of our past, I guess. But around those ma- waiting lists and stuff, uh, Peter Limmer um, made uh, uh, customs boots. Right. Back in, um, and again, you ordered, it was a one-year waiting list to get a, get a boots from him. And uh, I actually went back, I was traveling around the United States, and I actually went to his place and where he could measure my feet and stuff. And then... He, a year later, I got my boots. And wow. if you've never uh, connected that with your interviews and stuff, his boots, the entire upper of the boot is made out of one piece of leather, mm. uh, which is incredibly difficult to do. I mean, they're amazing. You know, nowadays, that type of boot isn't really popular anymore. But again, with those boots, back to Arcata Transit, one of the frustrations, mountaineering boots, in at Humboldt State became kind of a craze. Everybody wanted, and so these people, I don't think many of them ever went out hiking at all, <laughs> were buying these mountaineering boots from us just to wear around campus. Uh, and, you know, you buy all kinds of things, and you could see it as it developed out where the money was, was in clothing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't some of this other, the hard equipment wasn't what kept businesses going, shops going. And that was really frustrating and depressing for me. I, you know, and I've, you know, I've, anyway, I've struggled with depression over the years, but well, that's, that was the whole business thing got, it's just excess consumption, right? Uh, which I'm still really opposed to. I think it's part of the what's really th- uh, putting our earth in such great uh, crisis. Right. Well, there's definitely, I mean, that's something that I see when I go to large trade shows or used to go to large trade shows. We don't do that much now. Um, but you, you see a lot of product that you could take the label off and you wouldn't know whose it is, right? It, a lot of it kind of all looks the same. And, and to, to your point, um, the most sustainable thing would be to have fewer products right? Not as much stuff floating out there in well, the world. It, that also, again, with um, when we finally did it, and I wanted to do kind of a classy catalog, you know, and that was that, but it was oh. all in black and white. It was, you know, it was <laughs> sort of an attempt at art <laughs> in a ways. Uh, so I was really proud of this catalog. And so we mailed a copy of this to Dave and Elaine, Elaine Meeks, <laughs> who wasn't making the stuff anymore, but it was somebody I really respected. Elaine sent us a postcard back and said, well, Dave Dave says 
Sure, a long ways from a sleeping bag pinned together. I mean, pardon me, long ways from uh, two blankets pinned together, <laughs> <laughs> which you know predated sleeping bags essentially. Yeah. <laughs> from Dave, that wasn't a compliment. Uh, <laughs> again, it was just we're getting carried away with this stuff. You know, again, this idea yeah. people don't need it. Right. Uh, our bags were, our bags were beautiful things. Um, but most people didn't need them. Right. I think, I think the story that you shared about the one year waiting list is really interesting because the, the time that we live in now, it's, I need everything in two days. I need that two day shipping from Amazon. Um, yeah. and, and that I think leads to a lot of impulse purchases, right? It's like, Oh, I can order that and get it now. But I imagine thinking about buying products, knowing that I would get it in a year, I would definitely change what I buy. Um, and I, I just think that's an interesting idea, right? From a different time. Um, and I think maybe that's something that we can adopt more of, right? It's okay. Do I really, do I still want to buy this thing if I'm going to get it in a year? Right. That's when, you know, okay, that's the thing that's, I'm really going to value. I'm really going to appreciate. I want to make sure that it's, it's quality. It's going to last a long time. Um, it's worth the wait. Um, now I, you know, in the business world now, that's probably not feasible to to say, hey, wait a year, we'll get you a product. But, well, we but had, I think that idea is really interesting, right? That mentality of okay, I can wait, right? I, I don't to, need this uh, stuff. We tried to take care of people's needs, and that's if somebody had a really important uh, outing or expedition or something like that coming up. Uh, I suppose that was one reason. So some other people had to wait a year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is that if there was, you know, if if somebody, if it was really important that somebody would get get a bag, we'd make it. But even then, at the shortest, it'd be several weeks. Right. Uh, Still, for, even know, having to wait one, a few it took weeks. Us, it took us a couple of day, a couple of days to make each bag. <laughs> right. Yeah. The sales rep came by, and at one point he said, "How long do you think it takes Coleman to make a sleeping bag?" And I said, well, I don't know, about an hour or something. He said, 15 minutes. Wow. 15 minutes from receiving the materials cut till, till they get shipped out. 15 minutes. Uh, which, you know, obviously those weren't backpacking sleeping bags or anything. You know, and uh, I figured, well, geez, you know, there's, there's at least eight hours of labor <laughs> into one of our bags. <laughs> so, anyway. So, over the course of the the time the company was around, you were making products. How many do you think you two made? Did you have employees? Was it just you two that was, was making everything? It was just the two of us. Uh, uh, we made, actually, ultimately, we made more mucklucks and stuff. Because uh, I designed a muckluck that wouldn't slip off your foot. I mean, which... <laughs> You actually could you actually could go out and run in our mucklucks <laughs> and whatever. Anyway, um, as far as the bags, how many? We kept was, track of it, but it was just just a few hundred total. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple, two or three hundred bags, right. maybe three hundred bags. What what were some of the other products you mentioned? Mucklucks. I I read something about some a shelter, Misty Mountain shelter. Yeah, yeah. There was um, again. Uh, I think early when it, when Gore-Tex fabric uh, became developed, uh, early winters uh, made a uh, one-piece shelter sort of. Uh, but I saw that there's 
real problems with it. And so at Blue Puma, I designed um, a, a shelter, a one-person shelter that zipped up, was totally sealed. Uh, and then, but it was open. It had a mosquito netting in it where it could really function as a one-person tent. And we called it the bare necessity. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, but B E A R. <laughs> anyway, uh, and when, and then I sold out, and uh, I thought, geez, that's my design. And uh, <laughs> now what do we do? Uh, and so again, we I uh, refined it a lot more, <laughs> and uh, and we started selling that as a, as the Misty Mountain Shelter. Uh, and we actually did start making those. Be, we did sell those before we brought the sleeping bags out. Oh, so we had the Misty Mountain Shelter, and then we had uh, down booties and down mucklucks. And the muckluck went up to where, uh, again, you could wear it in deep, deep snow. Um, it didn't come off. It, uh, um Anyway, uh, so we had the mucklucks and we had the um, we had the booties, and and that was it. <laughs> what what was it uh, about this time? We we uh, we interviewed a few people involved in the creation of Rivendell Mountain Works. Yeah, yeah. What, what was going on with the Lord of the Rings influence? Misty Mountain Shelter, <laughs> Rivendell Mountain Works. What, oh God! What was uh, oh, what was Misty going Mountain on around that time? Misty Mountain didn't come from that. It was. Uh, here in Deadwood, uh, we have a lot of, we get a, uh, about a hundred inches of rain a year. <laughs> okay. okay. There's a lot of misty. <laughs> so the real, real world. Well, in Arcata misty also, that's right. Arcata, Arcata. This was in Arcata, which. Arcata had the misty mountains. Is total. Uh, okay. In, in Arcata, uh, 70, 70 degrees was a heat wave. Right. Kind of, okay. Uh, and so, yeah, the name actually did come from there with our sleeping bags. Uh, Naming them, uh, we wanted to come up with with names that nobody else used, and so I was into bird watching and stuff. So we started naming after birds, and we tried to name, take, pick a bird that would be found in the type of uh, uh, habitat or whatever that that the bags would be made for, and uh, so we had the the dipper and the hummingbird and uh, the snow bunting. Um, the ptarmigan. Uh, you know, ptarmigan was the, was the thickest one. Um, they were not real macho mountaineering names. There's, the humming, there's the hummingbird right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then we made a, a more simplified bag uh, and we wanted um, it to be you know, another thing. And so we named it after mountains. I mean, we had a cascade and, and stuff like that. And so then we, uh, that one didn't have the uh, double Two zipper. Two hummingbirds chasing each other. <laughs> and, then, and then we made, okay, so then we got into a semi-rectangular bag uh, with fancier stuff where the shoulder could be closed with snaps and then zip but, together. but if it was zipped together it actually could close down between the people to where it was like a mummy bag sort of you know the openings for well those bags so we end up making those into uh, a flower series 
And so we had a, a bag uh, named the Fawn Lily. Uh, <laughs> Columbine. Columbine. Larkster. Trillium. 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 Yeah. And, the flowers around here. <laughs> and then for uh, really ultralight, um, made it was made as a, as a liner potentially for the uh, heavier bags, but by itself, I bicycled across the United States in, in 71 and uh, went with just, 15 pounds of gear on the bike and wanted, I thought, I thought it was about having a really light bag for something like that. So we made a bag, the lightest bag in, at that time in the world. <laughs> and we named that uh, the Zephyr. Um, and um, yeah, so those are the, the names came up. The Zephyr, as far as this is being edited, so you can bet out of stuff, make it shorter, but <laughs> Where where did ultralight come from? <laughs> it kind of came from Fred Williams and I. <laughs> sort of. Um, I wrote an article for. Uh, well, I, we made the Zephyr, which is light. I wrote an. Uh, I guess it became an opinion article for Backpacker Magazine, was, which was about ultralight, spirit of ultralight, and uh, and. Except my consumption stuff, I said the spirit of ultralight is not going out and buying all this fancy ultralight stuff. It's using, it's substituting equipment with imagination, figuring out how you could do it without something. And I, years ago in the Sierras, I came across two guys. They're out backpacking, never backpacked before, and they just had their stuff. They had some old sleeping bags they'd stuck in, and they bought some balloon bread from the store, and they just kind of went out and do, did this. And I said, that was more the spirit of ultralight than it was just taking what you had and going out. Well, anyway, with the light, I challenged Fred to an ultralight challenge, and um, which was to go out. Uh, the requirement was we'd go out for, it had to be five days, uh, doing 25 miles a day, uh, and we couldn't take anything more than 15 pounds, measuring everything from the skin out. Uh, uh, literally, all of our equipment had to be under 15 pounds cumulative, including the food and everything. And we went out and we did this thing, and uh, we went uh, the Three Sisters Wilderness here in the Cascades. And uh, when we were finished with the five days, um, we had about five pounds of food left. Um, we realized we could have probably done this at 10 pounds uh, uh, total. And we did, you know, the climbing, we, we climbed the North Sister uh, in, as part of this. And the idea was to do an article also for that, for Backpacker. They had said we'd be interested. But Fred knew, and again, I forget names, but this guy at, at Outside Magazine that did stuff, and Fred told him about it, and he wrote it up in Outside, and so Backpacker canceled <laughs> my article. <laughs> but that was in um, 1981, I guess, uh, perhaps. Um, and it was, it was really before people were making what, the, quote, ultralight equipment. Ultra, um, anyway, so some of those things I mean, they came out of just crazy things. Sorry. Well, I, I had to ask a little bit about, about the names, and I'm glad you shared some of the different names of different products, but you know, the, the Misty Mountain one caught my attention because we did an interview all about Rivendell Mountain Oh, Works. yeah, yeah. 
and Larry Horton and that the, and maybe this is kind of a good way to tie everything together, but, um, and maybe you share some of these same thoughts, but, um, a lot of that was kind of a reaction to what was happening in the world at the moment and this escape, right? Leaving, going to the Tetons, yeah, right? Going to your own version of, you know, kind of an alternate world and starting a, a gear company. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rivendale, building your own world a little bit. Um, and so that's why I asked about, about that name in particular. But do you kind of share some of those same feelings around, I, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned, right? It's like building a company so you could escape, so you could go to your own paradise, right? Um, is, is there some truth to that from your perspective? Yeah. It, John Muir is, uh, is kind of one of my heroes. And is long before I got into that type of thing, before I knew who John Muir was, by the way, my high school was named John Muir High School in Pasadena. <laughs> but anyway, um, I was reading some of his stuff. And one of the, the anecdotes in his writing was uh, about, you know, he'd walked, uh, did this thousand mile walk around the United States and stuff, but then he went by ship to San Francisco and he landed in San Francisco. And the first thing he did was go up to somebody and said, how do you get out of town? Uh, and <laughs> they told him how to get out. And, and then that's where he ended up walking to Yosemite. Um, but he wrote that, <clears throat> that as a, as a kid, in uh, Wisconsin, uh, on his farm, they were digging a, a well. And because he was the youngest, he could fit down in the well. And so he was down in the well digging, and then they'd haul it out with buckets. When he's down there, he got what they called well gas, I think, at that time. But it was, I think it was methane or something that was building up in the thing. That in, and as he was down there, he was gradually become overcome by this gas uh and it was just slowing down slowing down and he in one of his writings characterized people living in the city as that way that the longer the they were in the city the less they were uh wanting to get out or whatever you know it's kind of like getting drugged um that importance of being out and reconnecting with the earth with, um, I think that's really important. I think it's one of the most important reason for backpacking. For me now, I mean, one of the things I don't backpack is the concern for how much driving there was to, you know, drive 150 miles to go on a 10 mile hike or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, when we had the river touring stuff, uh, it, took 150 miles of driving out and back to do this uh, 20 mile river float. And that again, for me was kind of insupportable and it's a conflict. I think it's really important that people get out to the wilderness, get out to, to nature. But that is the conflict with that is all the consumption that's required to do the, the right. driving, the gasoline, that type of thing. So we're, we're blessed to be able to live where we do. That way, the flip side of it is that we're 50 miles from town. Uh, you know, we were doing, I think, 6,000 miles about a year of driving wow. uh, with, the, with the adoption stuff. At the peak of that, one year we did 60,000 miles of driving. Um, and for me, it was 
literally praying to God that, you know, that somehow this, these kids' needs were such that we had to sacrifice that. Well, the need for getting out to the wilderness is sort of like that. It's, it's this trade-off between, you know, most of the people that are doing this outdoor stuff are, quote, environmentalists also. If they're really serious about their environmental concerns, there is this conflict that has mm-hmm. to be traded off. Right. I don't have the answer to it. But I think it's that I think that idea needs to be challenged. I'm glad you're bringing it up because, yeah, there there is the conflict there, um, and I don't know if we'll solve it here. If we solve it here, that's going <laughs> to be that's going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad that you bring it up. It's something that needs to be talked about even more. And and more than that, I think people need to step up and do something about it. And you know, that's something that I've always liked about where our university is located. Uh, we're five minutes from from a canyon five minutes from, you know, a beautiful river, uh, with great fishing, you know, great climbing, great hiking. Um, I can really get anywhere in town on my bike. Um, I should do that more. Um, but I, I love that idea of being somewhere where you, you know, it's, it's a walkable, bikeable community where you're close to outdoor recreation opportunities and you're not in that conflict. Um, so I'm glad that you bring that up. What is your town? Uh, we're in Logan, 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 Utah. So it's Northern Utah. It's a little college town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, about an hour and a half north of Salt Lake City. Uh-huh. So, um, well, I think that's a really great place to kind of tie some of this together. I, did did we miss anything? What what else do you want to share and and uh, <laughs> leave leave with everybody? I don't want to miss anything, but I, um, over in <laughs> over in the environmental pitch <laughs> because that still is a real. Con- um, and it ties together, I guess, with our faith. But um, Pope Francis wrote an encyclical, Laudato Si. Um, and one of the phrases out of that that I think is really important is, hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. Um, that these that social justice and environmental justice are linked. They, they can't be separated. Um, and and then the emphasis is we're at a, well, with the backpacking also, our kids and grandkids aren't going to be able to experience the earth like we do. Uh, for me, uh, backpacking in the 60s and the 70s, you could go out and hike and not see anybody for a couple of days, possibly. Uh, Today, yeah, in the, like the Three Sisters, you have to make a reservation for campsites in the in the backcountry. It's just what I got to experience as a young person isn't available to people today. What we can experience today isn't going to be ex- possible for people fifty years from now, and to a much much more serious extent. And really, if we don't come to grips with the extreme crises now, um, God knows what what is going to happen um, to to the next generation. I think life is going to be really, really hard for them. And this stuff about what kind of backpacking gear you need and this type of stuff is going to become irrelevant for lots of people. It's not even going to be an option uh, for a lot of people. And it's real sad. 
Right. Right. No, I'm glad that you shared that. Denise, any, any thoughts? <laughs> We're surrounded by hummingbirds. Here. We're surrounded by hummingbirds this morning. <laughs> no, I don't really have anything else to say. No, but this has been a wonderful opportunity. Yes. Thanks for being willing. Hear the story again, and <laughs> as you, it'd be kind of fun. As you've noticed, I'm the motor mouse of the. Of the she does. She's the worker bee, and I'm the motor mouse. Uh, Complimentary. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for taking time to share the story. I I really appreciate it, and I can only imagine what it's like to get a random phone call from someone and asking about <laughs> your life. So I appreciate you answering the phone and not hanging. It up. was. It, it was a surprise. Yes, yeah, we're starting to think ancient history. Okay, what was yeah. all that about? <laughs> yeah, well, it's been fun for me to learn. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of a student of the industry and not not a student of this program, but I, I want to learn about this industry and be a part of it and take the lessons that, you know, I, I think it's important to hear your perspective, right? You, you've been in this industry um, and been a part of it and you've learned some really valuable lessons that I think are especially relevant today. Um, those are important stories to be told. So just want to do a little bit, the little bit that I can to help share those stories and, and learn for myself. Some of this is kind of a selfish endeavor as well, but um, <laughs> if this is fun for me, but I appreciate yeah. you taking some time. So thanks well, thank again. Thank you, Chase. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on HighlanderMag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.